This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Yep, it's the Cinco de Mayo edition of the Talk of Fame Network. Tucky, then it's the Derby edition of the Talk of Fame Network. And Gooseman, logical guy, seems to be the perfect, maybe most logical bet in this year's Kentucky Derby field which happens to run on Cinco de Mayo, that'd be the 5th of May run, uh, is an entry named Bolt May 5th, Doro. May? <laughs> yeah, May 5th. Bolt Doro, which is Spanish for bet me now and buy us all margaritas later. Well, Clark is a football guy. I like the horse Audible. As a Michigan State oh. guy, I like the horse Good Magic. So you can have the Cinco de Mayo entry. Well... I tell you, the horse I like, Ron, uh, and he's not running. That would be Gronkowski, named after the tight end and friend of the show of the same name. Apparently, he's developed a fever, I guess, and can't travel. So, Ron, uh, question for you. Who do we see running first, Gronkowski the player or Gronkowski the horse? Well, Gronk the player has developed a fever, too, called the Bill Flu. He did, <laughs> he did uh, finally meet with Bill Belichick just before the draft and then came out and announced on Twitter that he had, quote, informed the coach he was playing. In 2018. Oh, good. I didn't good. know you informed the coach. I thought it was the other way around. Uh, <laughs> sounds like me, like to me, like one of those horses is in the middle of a stampede. <laughs> <laughs> When's Gronkowski the horse going to inform us that he's running? <laughs> <laughs> well, it won't be at the row at the uh, run for the roses. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, we're going to see neither today in our post draft wrap neither Gronk the player, or Gronk the horse, and our post draft wrap on the Talk of Fame Network. And we're going to hear from Carolina GM Marty Herney, who's stationed in Charlotte, carries our program, or at least it used to. I'm not so sure it does now. And who can tell us why they're doing cartwheels when they landed wide receiver DJ Moore? We also have an NFL historian, John Turney, a Pro Football Journal, talk to us about Jason Witten's Hall of Fame chances and to give us his take on the draft as well as Ulysses Harada, good friend of ours at Premier EDS, to talk what else? Cinco de Mayo and good friend, frequent visitor and Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle to give us his best oiler or Texan, not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. That's a lot. Goose, you have a nomination from Houston? Yes, sir. Charlie Hannigan, who was catching 100 passes in a season before it was fashionable. Ronnie? Oilers, Bud Adams. Without whom there is no AFL. Without the AFL, there is no NFL. Texans, Andre Johnson, but that's a reach. Oilers, I'm going with Dante Pastorini for his marriage. I'll be brief to June Wilkinson. You remember Good her. Good call. I do remember. Hall of Better Fame than move. you might imagine. Anyway, up next, you're going to hear a Hall of Fame moment from last week's draft and had nothing to do with the draft pick. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. I like standing up here before you as an undrafted free agent. Representing that shield for 15 years. Tonight, I'm representing the Philadelphia Eagles. Whoa, that was former Eagles kicker David Akers with his throwdown of the Cowboys and their fans at last weekend's NFL draft. And Goose, I know you were there. You live in Dallas. What did you think of David Akers' performance? Hall of Fame worthy, huh, or not? 
Oh, I expect the Eagles to bring it this year after Drew Pearson's performance in Philadelphia a year ago. You know, the Eagles are now the Super Bowl champs. The draft was in Dallas, whether it was Akers or Brian Dawson or Dawkins or Eric Mark or Bill Berge. I think the city of Dallas expected some not-so-friendly fire from the Eagles camp. <laughs> they got it. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Drew Pearson because, you're right, we did have him last week in Philadelphia, and, and he brought it hard, and so David Akers responded. And, Ron, I'll ask you the simple question now, and I think the obvious question, you have one draft pick, one draft pick for your next introduction at the next draft, one speech to make. Who's it going to be, Akers or Pearson? What, are you joking? I'll take the football. No. I'll take the football player, and that's not a kicker. <laughs> Goose, Goose, you're in Dallas. I, I assume you're taking Drew Pearson. Yeah, Pearson, and one like he didn't make it personal. He lauded his own franchise, not ripped on another. You know, Acres right. made it his responsibility to rip down the Cowboys. He made it personal. I thought it was at the White House Correspondence Center. Ooh, <laughs> oh, ooh. Oh. hey, uh, by the way, guys, you know, I just saw this. Um, I, I just saw this. The average number of first-round direct hits in a survey of 40 notable mock drafts was 3 out of 32. <laughs> 19 had two or fewer, and two actually whiffed 32 times. And, and Goose, none of them was named David Akers. So what does that tell you about mock drafts? It tells me I'm glad I didn't do a mock this year. You know, when the Browns took Baker Mayfield number one, it torpedoed 95% of the mocks. The one thing I learned from all my days as a mock drafter, when you miss the first pick, the draft heads off in a different direction. You need to get the first pick right or disaster awaits. Here's what I know, Clark. Two things. Gooseman would have had that pick. Of course. Number one. And I was a slappy when it came to the mock drafts and averaged twice as many right hits over my (laughs) delinquent (laughs) career. So these guys stink. Okay, Goose, speaking of the draft, how, how did it go over in Dallas? I, mean, I watched it on TV and I, you know, had a lot of people watching it, but, but it just seemed, from TV land at least, as if there was more energy a year ago in Philadelphia. Yeah, part of the reason is the draft was outdoors in Philadelphia with no limit on the crowd size. You know, The draft moved indoors inside AT&T Stadium this year where the crowd was limited to 20,000 in a theater-type setting. But in terms of sheer numbers, they had 250. 50,000 turnout and filled up for the draft in the NFL experience. There were over 400,000 in Dallas. Whoa! So Jerry wins again. Um, your biggest takeaway from this draft, Ron? Uh, my biggest takeaway is that nobody wanted those quarterbacks as badly as the Korean Cleveland Browns hoped they would. Uh, never <laughs> have six questionable guys been so often compared to guys who were actually were great, like that 83 class of uh, three Hall of Famers uh, out of six uh, uh, quarterbacks. Now, maybe all these guys are going to become the stars. But most of them are already in Nova. Goose, biggest surprise? Well, that, that the first quarterback to go was Baker Mayfield. You know, Sam Darnold was considered the safer pick. And this was a bold move by John Darcy that will either get him an extension in three years or get him fired. Mayfield <laughs> is an undersized guy, and the draft has always been about the measurables. Let's see, Cleveland, I'm betting on getting fired. They turn over their GMs every two or three years. Ron, what's your biggest surprise? My biggest surprise was that the Patriots had five of the first 95 picks and ended up picking five guys in round six and seven. Belichick was channeling his, his inner Dins, uh, Dick Steinberg, who once got me so mad that I wrote a column in which I said his ideal draft was taking his one and trading it for two twos, trade the two twos for three threes, three threes for four fours, four fours for five fives, five fives for six sixes, <laughs> six sixes for seven sevens, then pick somebody. <laughs> he also, by what? the way, swapped picks with the 49ers one year. 
He drafted Trevor Maddich. They drafted Jerry Rice. Ouch. Well, one of the draft's biggest winners, Goose, had to be John Elway, Hall of Fame quarterback John Elway, who's now the GM in Denver. Um, he didn't move from the fifth spot. He still picked up the best defensive player in the draft. Now, it's Bradley Chubb on one end in Denver, Von Miller on the other, and some unlucky slob in the middle, some quarterback. It sounds, Goose, to me like 2015 all over again. Well, the Broncos are going to need that pass rush more than ever. They don't have a Peyton Manning at quarterback like they did in their last Super Bowl team. They don't have a Terrell Davis at running back like they did in their previous Super Bowl champions. Those two skill positions are average at best on the 2018 team. So defense and the pass rush is going to have to carry the Broncos as far as this team can go. Well, as far as uh, John Elway goes, sometimes it's better to be lucky than good, and he was lucky that Cleveland was drafting ahead of him. Uh, you know, look, the Browns needed a corner, but if Chubb is, is as good as they say he is uh, and you put him next to Miles Garrett, they don't need any corners because the quarterbacks will all be upside down. That, to me, <laughs> long term could really be – I mean, this could be the draft, as the Guzman pointed out, where the noose is already in, uh, hanging from Dorsey's doorway. He just doesn't have his head through it yet, but it's on its yeah. way. Yeah, and I'll tell you, Goose, before we get to uh, your doctor data quickly, it, it, it bothered me when they said later, we drafted for need at four and not for the best player. I think that's dangerous when drafting at four. Yeah. Well, it's dangerous unless you're playing the NFC North and you got to have somebody cover Antonio Brown. Then it's a little less dangerous. Yeah, hope you can't stop take, him. Take Pittsburgh's going to win the division. Take the best player. Well, Goose, um, that's a signal we're about to hear from one Hall of Famer, and that's you, Harvard Goslin, about another Hall of Famer who just aced his final draft. And, Goose, you know who I'm talking about. You want to tell us about him? Yes, sir. If Ozzie Newsom didn't already have a bust in the Hall of Fame as a player, he'd be a very strong candidate as a contributor for his skill and expertise as a general manager. Newsom became the Ravens' GM uh, in 1996 when the franchise moved from Cleveland, and he sat in that chair making all the personnel decisions until last Saturday when he made his 190th and final draft pick. Few drafted better. Newsom used his very first two draft picks as a general manager in 1996 on Hall of Famers. Tackle Jonathan Ogden with the fourth overall choice, and middle linebacker Ray Lewis with the 26th pick. And he didn't stop there. Newsom found at least one Pro Bowler in 16 of his first 19 drafts through 2014. He drafted 23 Pro Bowls in all, spread out over 14 different positions. The only Pro Bowls he did not find were at wide receiver, center, defensive end, and place kicker. Twice he selected three Pro Bowlers in the same draft. He found five Pro Bowlers in the sixth round alone. It's too bad he wasn't drafted for the Patriots. He also drafted a third <laughs> Hall of Famer in waiting in Ed Reed, who was eligible for the class of 2019. Newsom drafted a player who rushed for 2,000 yards in a single season and a pass rusher who has amassed 125 career sacks and counting. He built two Super Bowl championship teams with two different head coaches and two different quarterbacks. Two of his draft picks were Super Bowl MVPs, Ray Lewis and Joe Flacco. Ozzie Newsom is now gone from the draft room but will not soon be forgotten in Baltimore. He was a difference maker for the Ravens without ever putting on his Hall of Fame helmet or pads. So, Gooseman, is Ozzie Newsom the greatest American drafter since Uncle Sam? <laughs> or you? <laughs> I'm still I'm still a big fan of Ron Wolf. Ron Wolf would kill it in the second day of drafts. I, I still am a big fan of Wolf, but I think in a 
in the salary cap era, I'm not sure there was any better than Ozzy. Uh, uh, six, me... Sixth round, five Pro Bowls, please. I know. It's pretty good. I bet he wouldn't, you... wouldn't have traded to get Trevor Maddich and let Jerry Rice go. <laughs> <pretty sure. laughs> hey, hey, Goose, quickly, what do you think his greatest draft pick was? Was it Ray Lewis? Boy, you got you got Ed Reed at 24, got Ray Lewis at 26. Flip a coin. Okay, well, not sure what Oz is going to do or where he's going to go next, but uh, best of luck. One of the best, as you said, Goose. Up next, we'll hear from NFL historian John Turney on more of the NFL's best. That's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. As promised, NFL historian John Turney of Pro Football Journal is with us. And he's here to talk about Jason Witten, Antonio Gates, Dwight Freeney, and maybe Devin Hester. I don't know. Uh, and, and maybe, maybe, just something on last week's NFL draft that caught his eye. I don't know. But, John, great to have you, as always. Appreciate it. Glad to be here, guys. Uh, I mentioned Jason Witten. He's in the news. Uh, I don't know. He might not make as good a broadcaster as Tony Romo. I'm not sure many people could. But there were a few better or more reliable tight ends. So the, the basic question, Jason Witten, Hall of Famer, what do you think? Oh, I think so. I think it's going to be... Uh, a little bit difficult for him to tr- to try to get in on that first try. And as we've talked about before, what matters about that first ballot is uh, if a guy is truly worthy, it, to me he has to answer this question, is it worth knocking other worthy guys back another year just because this player deserves to be first ballot? And if it's a Jim Brown, if it's a Gino Marchetti, mm-hmm. if it's somebody like that, a Jerry Rice, then the answer is yes. But if it's other guys, I think the answer is no. And I think Witten and Gates might have a problem getting in right away because they might not quite fit that status. Okay, John, let's assume, just for argument's sake, that Witten and Antonio Gates, who is no longer a Los Angeles Charger and mostly a San Diego Charger, but a Los Angeles Charger, let's assume they're in the same class. Who do you put in first? Well, if you had to pick one or the other, I really think you would probably have to go with Gates. And here's why. Uh, Gates had 114 touchdowns. Witten had 68. All the other numbers are are pretty similar. Gates was a four-time All-Pro, Witten three. Witten had 11 Pro Bowls, Gates eight. The, The yards per game are both at 52, exactly the same. Witten had a little bit more in terms of catches per game. But 114 touchdowns, and then you have to remember that Gates had 90 of those in the red zone. He was quite a red zone weapon, whereas 68 touchdowns for Witten, and he had, I believe, 47 in the red zone. So even though he was 6'5", 250, a big, big target, you have to ask the question, why wasn't he used in the red zone? as much as Gates. Of course, one little caveat of that is 110 out of the 114 touchdowns that Gates caught were from Drew Brees and Phillip Rivers. So he might have had a little bit of an advantage. I think uh, Witten caught touchdown passes from 14 different quarterbacks. Okay. um, Dwight Freeney retired. He's eligible. Leslie O'Neill has been sitting in the can for a couple decades now. 
who's more deserving of those two? Boy, that's a that's a really tough question because they're both very similar. O'Neill, in my opinion, was a much more of a technician. He had more varied moves, was better with his hands. I once at a Super Bowl talked to Ron Meeks, who was the defensive coordinator of the Colts. And I was sitting next to uh, somebody all of you know, uh, Paul Zimmerman, when we were talking about this. And the whole discussion was about Freeney in context of a defense. And the coaches and and Ron Meeks admitted that that Freeney did hurt the defense with his style of rushing, getting up the field, sometimes doing that spin move even too much where he was turning his back to the blockers and, and was a liability. But what they said is, Pass rush is at such a premium that it was worth that, and what they would do is coach up the other players around him to make up the difference. So if you have a guy who's a home run hitter in baseball that strikes out quite a bit, sometimes you have to adjust what's going on in the, the, in the three-hole, the three in the five-hole. Maybe that's the same with Freeney. Now, I think eventually he is going to get into the Hall of Fame, I think he probably has uh, enough of a resume to get there. He won a Super Bowl. Uh, I think his he's a little bit more unique, and he had more honors than somebody like Leslie O'Neill or Simeon Rice. But, again, you're talking about a one-dimensional player, which all three of those guys were. Okay, here's some names for you. Jonathan Ogden, Willie Rolfe, Walter Jones, Orlando Pace, Joe Thomas is retiring. Where do you put him in that group? I put him in that group. I think where uh, he's one of the he's there's those four. You throw in Anthony Munoz and Joe Thomas. I mean, these are guys that are multiple, multiple All Pros. You're talking seven, eight, nine times. That's rare. And you could argue that there's probably a few times where the writers might get it wrong. Somebody gets in there on reputation, but it was highly competitive. Between 1995 to 2004 or 5, it was hard to be one of the two all-pro tackles because you had to go up against Rofe, Ogden, Pace, Baselli, the guys that you're talking about. And Thomas might not have had it that tough, but I think he's in that upper, upper echelon of tackles. First ballot? Yes, I think so. Hmm. Wow. Hate that first ballot, but uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there's been a lot of talk about Devin Hester. If not, he's with, with Orlando Pace and Willie Rofe in that second ballot. I don't think that would diminish his career. No, you, Ron no. likes second ballot talk, though he doesn't like first ballot. Uh, talk. Exactly right. If you're in the Hall of Fame, nobody asks you. It's like your GPA. Nobody asks what it is. Uh, you in or you're not. Uh, when Devin Hester retired, there's a lot of media talk, of course, because they have good video of him, you know, so they can all the uh, <laughs> low-haired right. guys can say he's going to be first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, but there's no kick returners in the Hall, including White Shoes Johnson, who's the only member of the 75th anniversary team excluded. Brian Mitchell's not in it, second only to Jerry Rice in all-time yardage. Why uh, should Devin Hester jump ahead of those two guys? Well, I don't, I don't think he, he should. Uh, I do think he was probably the most – he is the most productive of all time. And I'm not talking just about yards and average. Uh, it's the touchdowns that matter to me. But you have to remember two things. One is the, the kick return game, especially the punt return game, changed hugely in 1974 when Upchurch 
and Billy Johnson came into the league, that's when they only allowed two men to go downfield, whereas before that, everybody could go down. So they did benefit from a rule change. And then there was those rule changes in 94 that benefited the kick returners, where they moved it back and they lowered the tee where you, where you, you couldn't use the high tee anymore. So Hester also benefited from rule changes. But I don't know if you can penalize players for they play under the rules that are there. But when you compare them to previous guys from previous eras, you have to take that a little bit into consideration. So I wouldn't mind if we're going to put in punters and kickers, and I think we should, then, yeah, all-around kick returners like Upchurch, like Johnson, like Devin Hester, should get into the Hall of Fame. You know, John, I, I'm going to ask you a draft question, too, and we're talking to John Turney of Pro Football Journal on here, and John's a uh, NFL historian, but we're going to ask him a question about the draft here because he knows that as well. But, uh, John, um, Cleveland at four, and, and Goose knows, this drove me crazy. They take the cornerback instead of the pass rusher, who a lot of people thought, and I'm talking about Chubb, um, was the best defensive player in the draft. And then afterwards, uh, Greg Williams admits that, well, you know, we didn't really take the best defensive player on the board. We drafted for need. When you're drafting at the fourth position and you're the Cleveland Browns, isn't that dangerous? Absolutely. You've got to take the best player available, especially when it's uh, a rare-type athlete. Now, we don't know if Chubb's going to turn out to be one of the great rushbackers, edge rushers of all time, but most of them, if you look at those who have 150, 130, 110 sacks, they're coming from that top five uh, position. And if you look at all the cornerbacks uh, that have the interceptions and the all-pros, even if they don't have a lot of interceptions, if they're the Darrell Rivas types, they don't come from that top five. So the position, even if you're not taking best player available, the rarer position, the, the, the position – that, that matters more in that top five is that pass rusher. That's where the great ones come from most of the time. So, John, I'm assuming you're not, this is not a franchise group of quarterbacks. The panic drafting that went on, you know, it, usually it's like one out of three of these guys make it. How many GMs think are going to get fired four years from now? <laughs> <laughs> You wonder what's going on in the NFL. You wonder if there's a little bit of that money ball that isn't sneaking into it. You read, you can't go you know, two weeks without reading about analytics and how that measures into the game. And, and I think the, everybody's got to do their due diligence. Do the analytics. That's all fine. But when you hear and read tweets by guys from Pro Football Focus where they, they mock the old-time NFL guys, because they would go by their gut. They wouldn't use the analytics. Or, or Polian might say something against analytics or, or Belichick. Mm-hmm. But those are the guys who have the skins on the wall, not the analytics guys. So I wonder if that isn't what's kind of going on a little bit in this, where they're trying to project what somebody did in college as what they're going to do in the pros in terms of completions, percentages, this and that where it's a completely different game, it's a much faster game, and just because the guy was successful in college does not mean he's going to be able to make that transition to the pros. We see it all the time. That's why you have a 50% hit rate in the first round and a 5% hit rate in the seventh round. 
John Turney, we've got to make a transition to commercials, so we got to go. Thanks, as always, and check in with you next month. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. That was NFL historian John Turney, a pro football journal. Up next, Carolina GM Marty Herney. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Marty Herney is not only in a second tour of duty as general manager of the Carolina Panthers, he's in the house with us today to talk NFL draft. And he's something of an expert on that subject because it was Marty whose draft stopped two Super Bowl teams in two different decades. Now, of course, he's hoping his 2018 draft, which, by the way, is his first since he left the Panthers in 2012. Anyway, he's hoping this draft can go a long way towards stocking another NFC champion. Marty Herney, welcome back as GM, and welcome back to this program. Thanks, Clark. It's uh, good to be back in both places. <laughs> Marty, Marty, it had been six years since you last sat in that chair and made a draft pick for the Panthers. So, what was your comfort level heading into this draft, or is drafting like riding a bike? Once you learn, yeah, you'll never forget riding a bike, Rick. It was, it was really, it was a lot of fun, and you know, I guess that helps too. It's the you know the same organization and a lot of the same guys in the draft room, and so the familiarity there helped a lot. Um, and, and just, you know, I had been there twice with Ron as well as the head coach and, um, it, it just, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, there are those moments where you're sitting there, maybe five or six picks and hoping the guy holds on the board and, and it happened that way for us in a couple rounds. Um, but it, it was just a lot of fun and it really was. It just comes back. It's, it's, it's the process and there's so many people involved in it and it's all about the preparation beforehand that, you really go through so many scenarios. Draft days just execute, and then and if you do the preparation right, you're not surprised by a lot. And it just it was one of those drafts that fell right for us. We always had at least one player in the pod that uh, we were hoping to to choose from in each round, and uh, we feel good about it. Of course, everybody feels good about it right now. You never know until you get playing. When you, when you mention fun, uh, uh, Marty, is it more fun for you now because you? Went through the experience of being out and then coming back in. Sometimes that changes perspective on uh, on a lot of things in life. Most definitely, I think. I think for sure. I think that it really was, and that's the thing you miss. I think most about this job that you know the the juice that the draft brings is is hard to replace. And um, I do think I learned a lot of things, um, and I think we hopefully we did a couple things better and and differently, but. Um, it, it really did. It's that's the thing that when I was out, and you know, I still always watched it and always listened when I was out, listening to the picks, and um, it's just such an exciting time because it's really, you know, as you guys know, that's how you build winners. You have to you, you have to explore every avenue to improve your team, but the core of your team is built through the draft. Well, you took hey, Marty, the first. Uh, uh, sorry, Clark. I was just going to jump in and ask me. You took the first wide receiver talking about building the core. Uh, of your draft with the twenty first overall we, pick, and took, what about him and Ridley? You know, more. a lot of people talked about Ridley, and, and you obviously went in the other direction. What separated the two? You know, it was close, and it was really hard. First of all, I didn't really expect both of them to, to be there uh, at twenty four, and when they were, um, what we like about DJ Moore is one: I think he's elite with the ball in his hands after the catch, and. Um, I think this is a run after the catch late. And he is, uh, he's 210 pounds, 
think he goes up in 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 uh, makes the contested catches. He's got great body control, and he played on a team played with four different quarterbacks this year, and he was really the go-to guy. Defenses would try to take him away, and he still made plays. Calvin Ridley's an excellent player, and and can uh, get separation and and has outstanding speed and and is really uh, an all-around excellent receiver. I think both of these guys are going to be excellent receivers uh, in this league. And and it was it was a tough decision, but we decided to go with DJ. I think because he really his skill set is a little different than we have uh, on our team right now. And we've talked a lot about. And a mix, an intermix of, of skill sets at each position group. And I think he gives us some of the traits that, that are a little bit different than some of the other guys we have. Hey, Marty, I was going to ask you, when, when you came back in the second and third rounds, um, you drafted two players at the same position. That would be cornerback. I mean, you got Dante Jackson of LSU in the second and Rashawn Golden of Tennessee in the third. And I guess my question is, the same way you get two cornerbacks, but was that by design or is that where the draft board took you? That's where the draft board fell, and with Golden uh, Clark, we're going to move him to say we're going to play him at safety, and oh, okay. it's a projection in the third round. But I think that he's a guy that you saw him a lot in nickel. You did see him some at safety. He played some in the LSU game. Um, he's a guy who we think you saw in the box, so he can do all the strong safety stuff in the box, and we think he's got the range and the lateral movement to play middle of the field as well. He's just a really good football player. And we think he can help us at that spot. Um, he was the guy who was was there. I mean, we really did our our board felt uh, where we basically took the the guy that was was the highest, and we had so many positions that we could address. You know, it's probably easier this year than maybe some other years. But um, and then in Jackson, just a guy with with elite suddenness and speed. He's, he fell to 55 because of his size. I'm sure people had some questions about it, but he will tackle. Uh, he, again, brings a skill set to our cornerback position that I think we don't have that just elite speed and, and suddenness, and he has a swagger about him. I, I do believe he can play outside. I know everybody it, it was pretty sure he was he could play the, the nickel position, but I do believe he can play outside. You watch the Auburn game the last minute and a half, he made about six plays at the end of that game in, in uh, critical situations, and he's just so competitive. He's also a punt returner, just like D.J. Moore is, so we helped upgrade our special teams as well. Marty, I've always believed that everyone should have a good first day of the first uh, three days of the first three rounds of the draft. The names and the talents, by and large, are all recognizable, but it's the last day of the draft, rounds four through seven, that can make a good draft great. Those are the rounds where your scouts can shine. You had six picks on the final day of the draft. Is there a later on pick that you're particularly excited about drafting? Well, our two-fourths, I think, were, were what we did was we took that second, third, and moved back. We got the top pick in the fourth round, and, you know, you, you uh, that's one of those picks that a lot of teams covet because you do get calls the night before in the morning of as far as trading up for it. We did it. We did get a couple um, these days it's turned into texts, not calls. I'm showing my, my age, but they all, you know, we got a couple texts about training back. Uh, but we just thought that Ian Thomas was, had too much ability to become a complete tight end, um, from Indiana. So we stuck and took him. And actually one of the teams that inquired about it said, well, thanks. We can quit trying to trade up because that's the guy they wanted. But 
I think this is a kid who's got a lot of upside. So excited about him. And then we used the fifth we got trained back to move up to the fourth to take Marquise Haynes from Ole Miss. And he's a little bit different for us because he's uh, 6'2", 235 pounds, and we, we probably plan to, to use him more as a pass rusher. Uh, he's flat-out speed off the edge. He can play that joker position. We can do a lot of things with him. And just in this league, as you guys know, rushing the passer and getting that guy that can come off the edge is extremely important. And we have a guy like that in Mario Addison, and he's very similar to, to his suddenness and the impact. Now, he is 235 pounds, so we'll have to use him in the right packages. But those two guys I think we're really excited about. Now, there have been uh, countless drafts where there were no kickers uh, selected. In this draft, there were seven special teams players selected, kickers, punters, and uh, even a long snapper. Uh, does that reflect the overall quality of players in this draft, or does it reflect kind of an increased premium on the kicking game? I would say a little bit of both, Ron. And, you know, we didn't really we, – we have a, a kicker, punter, and long snapper that we are extremely happy with. So we weren't going to draft one. But I did see a couple of those guys, and I think in general, to answer your question, one – I think the, the, the extra point, the, the change of the extra extra point has made kickers uh, much more valuable, as does the kickoff, because you really can. I mean, if you can get it into the end zone and get the touchback, it, it really does take your special teams a, a load off as far as the kickoff coverage part of it. Um, and then if you have a punter like we do that can hang the ball up there and have a hang time, it makes it so much easier on the punt coverage team. So I think that the specialists have become much more valuable um, as far as the kickers and the punters. And if anybody's ever been on a team with a bad long snapper, they have always been valuable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that they are. There's a there's a real value to those guys. Now. I assume, Marty, when you're talking about a premium on, on kickers uh, for kickoffs, you're talking about kickoffs as we know it now, maybe not as we know it in a couple years. Exactly. Exactly, in the present. <laughs> yeah. Okay, we're speaking with Carolina GM Marty Herney on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com, on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, uh, Marty, I've got a philosophical question for you. Uh, you've been around uh, a great GM in, in Bobby Bethard. Um, he's a Hall of Fame GM, and you've been there for a long time making very, very good draft picks. What's the biggest mistake a team can make in drafting? I think falling in love with one guy. And and I've done that. And I think that one of the things that I think um, I learned a little bit was just be patient and trust your board and let the board work to you. And we did that, and um, I think it paid off for us. And and it's real easy to, to get antsy and want to move up, especially in the earlier rounds. But I think, as, as Rick said, what, what, what really makes teams – and and what good scouting departments do is they find those late round choices that that add depth to your special teams and come in and and compete for four years and fill roles. And I think that that if you fall in love with one guy and you trade up and you trade a lot of picks, um, I, I just think that being patient is so important. And um, that would be my answer now. It might not have been my answer eight years ago, but that's uh, one of the things I think being away from and stepping away from it and looking, that's one of the things that, that I thought I learned. Marty, your team finished 11-5 a year ago, went to the playoffs. 
which took a couple pretty good hits uh, in free agency this offseason, losing Pro Bowl guard Andrew Norwell and defensive tackle Star Latuli. After free agency and after the draft, on paper, is this a better team than it was a year ago? I think it is. I think we, we increased our team speed. I think we lost Star, but we added Don Terry Poe in free agency. I think that we have uh, a lot of depth on the offensive line, and we have to get somebody to step up and fill that left guard role. But there's three or four guys, I think, that are capable of competing to do that. Tara Moulton was a second-round pick last year. Amini Soltul was the second-round pick from, uh, what, 11 when I was here. Um, and we uh, we added a couple guys. We've got Tyler Larson, who played a lot of the season at center for us, that I think can compete there. Um, so I think that we have some guys, and we have an excellent line coach uh, in John Matzkow. So, you know, if we can fill that spot, and and with Don Terry Poe uh, being in, in Star's place at defensive tackle, I think what we've done to increase our speed and athleticism at the skill positions, uh, I hope we're better. I mean, 11-5 and is hard, especially in our division. So yeah. we'll see how it translates. But I feel like on paper we are. Hey, Marty, thanks so much for the time. Uh, best of luck getting you fitted for a Super Bowl ring. And, and one question, are we going to see you in Canton this summer for the Beathard induction? I hope so, yeah. You know how I feel about Bobby. I mean, I, I – uh, I would never have been in the league without him. So I just, I'm so thrilled that happened. And, uh, yeah, I, 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 I plan to because it's, uh, it's well deserved. Thanks again, Marty. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure. We'll Thanks, see you buddy. at the party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look for Ron on top of one of the tables. Which is... <laughs> right with my shirt off. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> that was Carolina GM Marty Ernie. Up next is the two minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're nearly out of time, so Ronnie, blow that whistle. That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, that means we're on to our two-minute drill with this week's whistleblower. Well, it's Ron Borges running it. So, Ron, let's get going. Okay. Jaguars owner Shad Khan wants the Super Bowl at Wembley Stadium if he buys the building. Is that un-American? That's the idea of a rich guy who wants to get richer. Yes, it is, Ron, which is why we're building a wall around it. Exactly. Take a knee, I say. A new kickoff proposal is planned to come out by mid-May. What's your idea, guys? My idea is to leave the kickoff alone. My idea is to take the guys who want to eliminate it and eliminate them. (laughs) Josh Allen's high school tweets caused a draft day scare. Should anything you say in high school be considered part of your resume? Ron, the good news, we didn't have Twitter or Facebook during our high school years, so there was no chance to embarrass ourselves. Uh, yes, Ron, what you say on your SATs. <laughs> what uh, did you pay- say on your SATs? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said I don't know the answer. Cleveland now says everyone who wanted to trade for their number one pick wanted Baker Mayfield, their pick. Hot scoop or fake news? Sounds like a guy trying to justify his selection of an undersized quarterback with the first overall pick. Agree. Fake news! The Yankees didn't want him. Tom Brady says he was taken the fifth when asked if he felt the Patriots appreciated him. Why did he take the fifth? Because Giselle told him to. Because if he said what he meant, Ron, the Patriots would be drinking the fifth. <laughs> uh, Mayfield's agent Jack Mills claims the Patriots were ready to tr- try and trade up to number two to get him if he was still on the board. Would Brady have appreciated that? Brady probably didn't appreciate Danny Etling in the seventh. <laughs> 
Yes, he would, Ron, because New England's going to need another quarterback in five years. Joe Edley's brother, uh, Gooseman, Gatling Gun. Uh, <laughs> Eagles owner Jeffrey Lurie's anti-Trump comments made at a private league meeting between players during the anthem crisis were leaked. By who? A bloodhound would take you to 345 Park Avenue. Julian Assange. <laughs> Did the Cardinals end up with a quarterback steal of the draft? Not unless they drafted Lamar Jackson. Uh, not unless they drafted Tom Brady. That's the end of that. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. When we return, we'll hear from Hall of Fame voter John McLean and our Mexico City correspondent, Ulysses Harada. Plus, Ron will bring order to the court and give us his candidate for Ken. So stay where you are. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome to hour number two of our Cinco de Mayo edition of We've been talking NFL draft from Jason Witten to Gates and White Freedy, but guys, I want to talk about someone else who's not on the Hall of Fame radio, but who is in the news, and that's former linebacker Matt Millen who's suffering from a rare heart disorder that causes his heart to operate at about, what I understand, 30% of its functionality that requires chemotherapy and that demands a heart transplant. Now, as an aside, a few weeks ago, we did have Matt scheduled to appear on this show, but then he told us he couldn't make it. And Goose, I think we just found out why. Yeah, your health is far more important than any appearance on the Talk of Fame network. You know, Matt has always been one of the most accommodating interviews, whether it was as a player, as a general manager, a television commentator. He was one of the good guys. Yeah, Ron, I, I knew Matt after he retired, and then my wife and I spent a day with him at his place in Pennsylvania, great spot, but but you knew him as a player with the Raiders. Do you have any favorite stories or memories? Well, I, I do. I have a lot of memories, and I have one really favorite story. Remember the year Chuck Muncie was, was coming close to tying the uh, rushing touchdown record? In those sure. days, yeah. remember late in the game, you could stand behind, uh, you know, you were down in the field, like you yeah. actually people actually liked you. So we would always stand behind the end zone. So the the Chargers have the ball near the goal line. It's right near the end of the game, and the two <laughs> Raiders come out of the defensive huddle. And Matt looks up, and he sees me, and he hollers out, Millen's coming over the guard. I mean, I mean, Muncie's coming over guard. Bang! It was like this tremendous head-on-head collision. They both sort of slid backwards, and Muncie didn't get it. So, I mean, he was a great guy, smart guy, very quick-witted, very interested in a lot of stuff, you know, antiquing and woodworking. Yeah, right. Yeah, just right. a great, great guy and and boy he was a force uh, against the run and a really smart football player well goose I, I don't know if you've seen some of his comments since his condition was made public but but you gotta love him i mean insists he's going to still call college football games saying and this is what i love most about matt as long as i'm on the side i'll enjoy everything like yeah the man the man knows both knows and loves football you know, it still amazes me that uh, that guy is sharp and as savvy as matt didn't pan out as gm but yeah like most failed gms he couldn't find a franchise quarterback yeah, well, well, yeah, well, it's because he kept looking at wide receivers. But you know that quote sums <laughs> up that, uh, that that quote really sums up, I think, his whole approach to life. You know, I mean, yeah, it is. he yeah, wanted well. to do a lot of different things, and he wanted to be happy doing it. Uh, whether he was successful or not in any job, it never changed who he was. Well, we're all thinking of you, Matt. Get well, and we're going to keep you on the side for a long time. Up next, we're going to hear all about the NFL from Mexico City. This is the Talk of Fame Network.
is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's Cinco de Mayo week here at the Talk of Fame Network, and that's a big deal in this country. So big, as a matter of fact, that Ron, I see, is reaching for his margaritas as we speak. Ron, put it down, please. We're on the air. I'm not sure how big of a deal this is in Mexico, however, and in I mean that. I mean, be honest with you. I don't know. So we're going to find out. Guys, we have someone on the phone you know well. I know well. And it's someone who was the subject of a New York Times feature last year. And that's Ulysses Harada of Primero EDS. Ron, that's first and ten in Spanish. Si, senor. Ten, Ron. There you go. Oh, there you go. Okay. Ulysses, buenos dias. Como esta? Hola, hola. Uh, Feliz Cinco de Mayo. Hello, guys. Uh, it's, great. It's, talk- it's great talking to you guys. Uh, uh, it's been a pleasure to be with you uh, in the shows. And great to talk about football. It doesn't matter. It is Cinco de Mayo or it's November and November 19, I think, on Monday Night Football when the Rams and the Chiefs will meet in the Mexico's International Series. So ready to go, guys. Okay, first question. I said Cinco de Mayo is a pretty big deal in this country, especially if you're a beer company, it is. What about Mexico, Ulysses? Oh, well, uh, here in Mexico, Cinco de Mayo is not such a big deal. It's an important date because it was a, a, a date when we won a war uh, against the French Empire in about, uh, I think, uh, 150 years ago because it was Napoleon III uh, army. Uh, but it's not as big. Uh, the biggest uh, date here in Mexico is Independence Day, that is September 16th. But, uh, yeah, Cinco de Mayo has become quite popular over there. Yeah, not, not at, as popular here. That's cool. Okay, Ulysses. Another to drink margaritas, right? Who needs a reason? Put that, put that down, Ron. Uh, Ulysses, if, if it's not all that big, well, how about the NFL draft that just concluded? Was that a big deal in Mexico? And did you watch? Did you watch all three days? Yeah, that's a big deal. And it's such a big deal that the Steelers made a draft party here in Mexico City. Oh. Uh, a couple of years ago when... When the NFL returned to Mexico City, they uh, announced a draft pick live from Estadio Azteca. I think it was uh, Jim Plunkett with a fifth rounder or fourth rounder from uh, from the Estadio Azteca. And yeah, it's such a big deal here in Mexico because the NFL is a big deal here in Mexico. I know uh, a lot of people are getting ready for the World Cup, but I don't care. So uh, yeah, you know, with the draft, it comes high hopes for all teams to become, you know, the next Super Bowl champion, the next Philadelphia Eagles, and even the Browns have got that hopes, at least until week one, right? <laughs> exactly. Ulysses, who but is yeah, the no, most... No, the draft is quite big. Ulysses, who, sorry, is the most, who is the most popular Hispanic player ever in Mexico? All right. Ever. That's that's a really ever. good question. I, I, I want to say as a player... I think is Jim Plunkett because what he did with the Raiders and of course because the NFL was a lot of popular in the in the 70s 80s so yeah Jim Plunkett was a, was a really good quarterback uh, over there so I think he's one of the most popular and maybe the kickers you know Mexico is good for having uh, Mexican kickers we got Raul Alegre with the Giants that won a couple of Super Bowls. Mm-hmm. Septien with the Cowboys that that won a, a couple of, of uh, a Super Bowls. So I think those are. Uh, I can assure you, it's not Mark Sanchez. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Okay, I know. I know your website does a lot of research on who the uh, 
the folks at Mexico. Like, what are the favorite teams, and are you surprised by any of the teams at the top of your list? All right, I'm not surprised. As I was telling you guys, the NFL came to Mexico. Uh, the broadcast came in the 70s, 80s, so the most popular, everybody loves winners. So who, are, who are the most uh, Super Bowl winning franchise in NFL? The Steelers, number one. The Cowboys, number two. The Patriots, number three. That's the, And the 49ers, number four. I, I think that's the top four. And the fifth is between, you know, the Broncos or the, uh, the Packers or the Raiders or the Death Door, the... The Redskins, the Giants, they're quite popular. They're on the top ten, but the top four are Steelers, Cowboys, Patriots, 49ers in that order. A couple of years ago, of course, uh, nobody was rooting for the Patriots because they were not doing anything. But then some, some guy called Tom Brady came, won five Super Bowls, playing a lot more Super Bowls. And maybe he's going to play in Super Bowl 53, right? Right. right. Yes, sir. That's what he thinks. That's for sure. Uh Wondering uh, what uh, Mexican football fans think of Tom Flores. You know, he was the first uh, Hispanic American quarterback. You know, his, his parents were from from uh, Mexico, and he grew up in California. He was the first starting quarterback of Hispanic heritage. He was the first head coach, and he be, and he was the first Hispanic head coach to win a Super Bowl. And of course, he won two. Um, is there much recognition down there or understanding of uh, the historical significance of of Tom Flores? It is uh, a recognition, uh, but most of them for the older fans. As I think, uh, you know, for all NFL legends, it's, you know, older fans that uh, were following the Raiders when he became a coach and won. And I, I don't know if there's any fan of the Chiefs when he was the backup quarterback. Uh, that's a fact I only know because I, I'm, I'm rooting for the Chiefs. But I'll, uh, I, 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 I don't know, but here in Mexico, yeah, there's a lot of respect. There's a lot of recognition of what he does, but for the older fans. Now, if you ask a, a new NFL fan who was Tom Flores, he doesn't have any idea, but I think that's the way it is. Now. Maybe, yeah. uh, you know, there there's a lot of players that even that they do not play snap in regular season, they were part of the NFL rosters and with the NFL Europe, uh, a couple of wide receivers, you know, Marta Marcos and Carlos Rosado, they even played here in Mexico with the American Bowl. I, uh, if you remember, when the Cowboys, the Broncos, the Raiders, they, they played here in Mexico, yep. they were part of the rosters on, on preseason. They never play a regular snap in NFL in, in, in a regular season. But another important, uh, you know, player that was all made in Mexico, he... He was born in Mexico. He played football in Mexico in a university, Tech Monterey, the one university that beat Cam Newton Auburn uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it was it was uh, uh, Ramiro Pruneda. He he was part of the Chiefs roster. He never played an, an NFL snap, but I think that's a kind of a breakthrough here in Mexico. You mentioned earlier that November nineteenth is the uh, is the big game this year, Chiefs against the Rams. Um, is there, do you think there's going to be more anticipation for that game or when uh, Major League Baseball returns for two exhibition games between the Padres and the Astros? Or, I can tell you that it, it, it's going to be the NFL. Even that, uh, you know, Rams and Chiefs are not of the most popular NFL teams. Uh, they're going to sell out, and they're going to sell out in like one hour, one and a half hour. Again, 
it looks like a great game. At least the Rams look like a Super Bowl contender. I, I, I'm not sure about the Chiefs. And you know, you got this Marcus Peter revenge bowl game uh, narrative. But I, I do think uh, the game is at prime time, Monday night again, for the second time in three years. And I do think uh, in Mexico, we love NFL. Now we got over 30 million NFL fans, some of them casual, a lot of them hardcore. And it's the opportunity to watch pro football is uh, on our countries is too big to pass. So I do expect to be uh, to be packed. The stadium is going to be full, and I'm sure of it. It's not going to happen like last year when the Patriots and the Raiders came. That uh, it looks like a really good game, and it ends like Tom Brady wrote. But uh, I do expect that it's going to it's going to beat what anything you put. Not only the 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 the, the baseball or the NBA that also came here, or Formula 1, or Formula 1, sorry. Ulysses, muchas gracias, and we'll see you down the road this year. Maybe in Canton, huh? Who knows, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe in Canton. I- I'll love for you guys to hang in there here in, in Mexico City, ask Ron about the, the Mexical cocktails. He was really good okay. food, right, Ron? Yeah, it was excellent. It was excellent. <laughs> yeah. He can charge everything so, yeah. to you, Ulysses. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, no, that, I'm looking forward. And if you, uh, you if you want to come here, I will will give you a Mexican welcome. So, guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me, and see you around. That's Thanks. it. Thank you. That was Ulysses Arada, Primero EDS. Up next, we're going to hear what Ron has to say about a former Supreme Court judge going to the Hall of Fame, not justice. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, it's always great to catch up with Ulysses. Um, did you guys have any idea that Cinco de Mayo was bigger here than it was there, Ron? Well, I know one place where it's big. That's in uh, Las Vegas where they have one of the biggest fights of the year every year is on uh, uh, oh, yeah? Cinco de Mayo. Yeah, and uh, every year. And uh, for a while, Are you was, involved in that fight? Yeah. <laughs> so well, a couple of times it has happened that way. But, uh, you know, normally it would be, uh, you know, great Hispanic fighters until Floyd Mayweather got going. And then he took over and did a big pay-per-view show every year and dubbed it Cinco de Mayweather. <laughs> so he's got his own holiday. Perfect. Hey, Goose, this must be huge in Texas. I mean, everything's big in Texas. This must be huge. So, so tell me, be honest here. What's bigger, Cinco de Mayo or the Cowboys' home opener? Please, even south of the border, they'll tell you it's the Cowboys' home opener. That's why Dallas is the team of all the Americas. <laughs> of all the Americans, there we go. Por favor, please. Well, I, I think it's pretty cool that the NFL is making regular stops now in Mexico. Um, seems to be, as Ulysses pointed out, a love for the game there, and and they can pack the place. I mean, they, they fill that stadium, um, and that means, of course, cha-ching, money, money, money. And, Ron, the NFL loves to cast checks. Hey, who doesn't, right? Well, right, uh, but I, I, I think you mean dinero, dinero, dinero. Yeah, that's right, Den- and not Robert. Dinero, dinero, <laughs> exactly. dinero. You're right. Same church, different pew. As my father. Was exactly. It's all about the money. Well, there's another overseas stop where the league likes to cash checks. Goose, you know where I'm going. That's London overseas. Let's um, go. Jacksonville owner. Yeah, let's go. I'd love to go. I love that city. That's a great, great place. Um, but Jacksonville owner Shad Khan apparently loves it too. He's reportedly on the verge of buying Wembley Stadium for reported $1 billion. Goose, obvious question here. Been a lot of talk about the NFL going over there permanently. You've heard it at league meetings. Roger Goodell said it. Other owners have said it. 
Do you think this is the first step toward relocating Shad Khan's Jaguars in London and making them the NFL's first foreign-based franchise? You know, I, I still think that they'd better speed up the process of developing Germany because I don't think they can send one team over mm-hmm. there. I think they have to have right. two teams that go over the just for scheduling. So when you go on the road to play in London, you'll play the next week in, in Germany. And Germany was the best market for the World League. I mean, at the end, the last year of the World League, I think five of the six teams were in Germany. And I do think uh, eventually the NFL is going to go to Europe. But I I, I got to believe there's got to be two teams, not just the one. And that makes Germany a player. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And, I, and Goose, what about like a European division at some point, you know, um, four teams at some point? And that are you going to take away four teams from the U.S. market? No, I, no, I mean, I'm just talking about expansion down the road. Uh, I mean, I'm talking about 20, football's 30 years. Football is bad enough like as it that. is. We don't, yeah. <laughs> we don't need more teams. That's right. Please. That's right, but we can watch it. We can have it called in different language. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> you know, guys, don't you, don't you find it interesting that, that uh, the guy who owns the Jaguars, uh, he's going to pony up a billion dollars uh, to buy Wembley Stadium. But when they want to build a stadium over here, every poor sap who <laughs> yeah, drives a cab exactly. for a second right. job That's has right. to get banged in his right. taxes uh, to pay right. for it. Why is that? Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Because we love to squeeze you dry. That's exactly why. Right. Uh, right, Ronnie, um, I saw an article in USA Today. It basically called Chad Khan out and saying he's going to move the team there. And, and that, of course, provoked the expected denial. Um, he said, and I'm talking about Chad Khan, said, quote, and I'm quoting him, every time there's a transaction that has visibility, you folks start connecting dots that shouldn't be connected, unquote. Ron, you connecting dots, or do you want to plead the fifth here? Well, uh, I'll tell you honestly, I, I love connecting dots. I also love eating dots. Oh, sometimes in the movies, <laughs> you know. They are good. <laughs> yeah, they stick in your teeth sometimes in the movies, you know, which is uh, kind of the same way this move is going to stick in the craw of uh, football fans if they uh, uh, try to take the Jaguars and, uh, and, and move. And, and, and by the way, uh, just as a point of interest, uh, isn't that a shad a fish? <laughs> it is, yeah. We have shad runs here every every spring, yeah, or I well, guess it's in June. You have them in, <laughs> in Massachusetts, too. Well, shad American festivals. football fans are going to make uh, a shad swim with the fishes if you try to do that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Goose, I'm not going to ask you about him swimming for the fishes, but any any chance he might be doing this to get involved in the Premier League and, and then sell the, the Jags and, and move into uh, European football? You don't have to sell the Jags. You know, the, the Glaciers own Manchester United. Stan Kroenke owns Arsenal. And Khan himself owns the Fulham team over there already. You can you can have the two teams. Oh, no, I understand can, that. Yeah, I understand that. But I'm, that he might just sell the Jags and say, screw it, I'm going over I'm going to If, if he can't Premier. move Jacksonville to London, I could see him bailing on the Jags. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, okay, well, Probably the premiership um, is uh, no salary cap. Yeah, exactly. They don't like exactly. that. No salary cap. Um, <laughs> let's move on to something else that Shad Khan, or as Ron would like to pronounce him, Shad Khan, Shad Khan. swimming for the fish, fishes, Khan, fish Khan. Um, said in the wake of the story breaking, and, and that's that he would like to see the Super Bowl played in London. And, of course, he suggests, well, Wembley Stadium, why not? I'm, I'm going to own it. Why not? Goose, what are the chances of the Super Bowl being played in London and in Wembley Stadium? I think very good. You know, when the NFL wanted to play – in a northern city, they went up and played in northern cities. When they wanted to play outdoors in New York City, they went outdoors and played in New York City. I, I think the itch is there to make this an international game, and London is the obvious choice. And I could see inside the next 10 years a Super Bowl in London. You got that itch, Ron? 
Uh, I don't have that itch, uh, but I but I think the Goose Man's on to something, as usual. That's uh, because uh, I think the odds are better than you think. And they'll try to sell it as, uh, you know, it's all about the global economy, which yep. works so well with NAFTA. You know, that was really good, <laughs> unless you worked in the manufacturing place, and then it's not so good. But uh, for them, they see it as, as big money. They don't care about irritating the fans. Uh, mm. And the next thing that will come after that, of course, is uh, the replay officials – You'll have to call Mumbai to get the, uh, to the call center so they can get the replay officials. I, I want to hear that call, by the way. Um, maybe they could get it right there where they can in New York. Um, so, Ron, and, and Ron mentioned, you know, they don't really care about the fans. I think that's probably true. But, Goose, I will ask you anyway. Isn't the risk of alienating that fan base here? greater than the reward of winning over football fans there, especially because those football fans, they like their football packaged as football, not as, Amer- as, uh, as European football, not as American football. They like it packaged as soccer. Did they care about how the fans felt about the Tom Brady suspension? Did they care how the fans <laughs> felt about the Ezekiel suspension? They don't care what okay. the fans think. That, that bogus, the fans are the game. No, no, no. The owners and the money is the game. And if there's more money to be made in London, they're going to London. No, I agree. I mean, I, I think, Clark, that uh, uh, you know, these guys look and they say, well, these Americans, they're about tapped out on jerseys. You know? But we got a whole new market of jersey buyers over there in, in, in London and Berlin. But, but Ron, isn't that places. what they're doing with that, sort of the American Bowls? I mean, having those, yeah. isn't that what they're doing the regular season? Right, but every now and then you've got to exactly. throw in something that's really real. You know? and, uh, and that's what, eventually that's what they'll do, and they'll convince the owners to do it because, boys, we're going to make money. That's all I yep. care about. Yeah, I, I just think there's a, a great danger of really – I mean, we talk about the national anthem, alienating fans. Now you're going to take away the most important, the most significant game and send it overseas? Goose, I don't know. I, I just think that's a, that's a real danger. But the average fan watches the game on TV anyway. The average fan cannot afford to go to this game. The, the league has priced the average fan out. So by and large, most people are going to watch it on TV anyway. And you know what they'll do? This is how, how, how sick they are. To make sure it's – they'll still want it on at uh, – uh, at the normal time here in the United States, which means they'll play it at like 11.30 at night in, <laughs> That's uh, in right. London. That's right. They don't care. They don't care about that. Players are asleep. They don't care. Well, our Ron Borges isn't asleep, and he isn't going to London or Wembley or even Jacksonville, but he is going to court with this week's State Your Case, and that's because Ron made the Hall of Fame case this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, for former Supreme Court Judge Byron Wizard White, arguing that if Terrell Davis can make it to Canton, why can't Wizard? You know what, Ron? I think you should make it on that nickname alone. Anyway, Ron, you want to tell us about it? Well, Clark, if only three truly Hall of Fame-worthy seasons are enough, it was enough to gain Terrell Davis entry into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, why not Wizard White? The election of Davis last year surprised many Hall of Fame purists, like myself, because longevity had always been a hallmark of election to Canton. Gail Sayers was uh, long seen as the baseline, uh, having had... Uh, five Hall of Fame-worthy years during an injury-shortened seven-year career in which he led the NFL in rushing both before and after a devastating uh, knee injury. But in 2017, Hall voters made a bigger exception for Davis, who was twice named Offensive Player of the Year, was one of the most prolific postseason rushers in NFL history, uh, before his own knee injury prematurely finished his career. So where does that leave Wizard White? When Wizard White was drafted by the then-Pittsburgh Pirates with a fourth overall pick in 1938, he had no intention of playing pro football. Uh, only days after that, he was named a Rhodes Scholar, and he was set to, on pursuing his academic life in England until officials at Oxford uh, allowed him to defer his arrival until 1939. Free to turn pro, he took the league by storm. He was not only the highest-paid player in pro football in 1938, but as a 21-year-old rookie, led the league in rushing before leaving for Oxford after the season. 
But then World War II began in Europe the following summer, and he returned to the United States and was admitted to Yale Law School, uh, in, just like Warren Sapp probably would have done, in October of 1939. <laughs> uh, that derailed his immediate return to the NFL, but in 1940 he was back playing for the Detroit Lions and he again led the league in rushing uh, while also finishing seventh in touchdowns, ninth in pass completions, and seventh in interceptions, being a two-way player. In 1941... He was ninth in rushing, averaged 31.6 yards per reception, was third in all-purpose yardage, led the NFL in both punting and punt returns and finished second in kick returns while continuing his studies at Yale. Now, after having twice been named first-team All-Pro those first two seasons, uh, they thought this was a down year for the Wizard, so they made him second-team All-Pro. And then he went to war and never came back. Wizard White entered the Navy in 1942. He earned two bronze stars. And when he came out, he went back to Yale, graduated magna cum laude, and in 1962 was named a Supreme Court Justice, where he served until 1993. But they thought enough of him in pro football to put him on the all-decade team of the 1940s, even though they only played for two years. Wizard White <laughs> had three NFL seasons as brilliant in their day as Terrell Davis's. So why should he not join him in the Hall of Legends in Canton? Ron, did he invent the Wizenator? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so, and I don't think he would have needed it either. I think <laughs> Maybe he should be in the hall based on that. If he did. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for our world tour and our Supreme Court history and Wizenators education there. Up next, we're going to Houston and Hall of Fame voter John McLean for the best Oilers, tax attack, anyone from Houston out in the Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to the Talk of Fame Network, where we talk all things Hall of Fame, or not Hall of Fame, which leads us up to our next segment, where we continue our best not in Canton series. Each week, we stop in another of the 32 NFL cities to talk to Hall of Fame voters about the most glaring omissions from each of their towns. And our stop this week is Houston. Today, we visit with a longtime friend, John McLean, who's been a beat writer covering first the Oilers and then the Texans for the Houston Chronicle. John, always, always great to have you. Welcome back. My pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me, as always. Hey, John, when Robert Brazil finally getting his bust in Canton as a senior candidate in this class of 2018, who is now the best candidate from Houston not in the hall? Rick, there's um, in, on the 50-year anniversary of the AFL, I was trying real hard to put together a plan to help Bud Adams get in. But, Bud, everything he did was before the merger. Uh, when Lamar Miller came to – I'm Lamar Miller. Lamar Hunt <laughs> came to Houston <laughs> to see if Bud would be interested in starting a new league because they both tried and failed to buy the Cardinals. Bud said yes. The league was announced in Bud's office here. Lamar, of course, was the main guy, but Bud was number two. And the two of them were invited by George Hallis to Chicago, and Hallis offered them the Dallas and Minnesota franchises. They dropped that idea, and they told him, okay, if he would put it in writing, and he wouldn't, and he kicked them out of the office, said they were going to ruin pro football. So they started their new league. And Bud did a thing like at one meeting uh, – Lamar Hunt was on one side of a table, and Al, Al Davis was on the other, and Al said, if we want to turn up this rivalry, we have to start signing 
NFL free agents and not just the college players. And Lamar said the guys that want to side with him and not do that be on his side and anybody who agrees with Al. And Bud went over with Al, and they start going after veteran players, and that really forced the merger. And Bud also won the first two championships, lost the third game, lost another championship game. This was all in the 60s. He traded the rights to Joe Namath to the Titans slash Jets basically saved the American Football League. There was a secret meeting of AFL owners, and they all put one name in a hat before the 65 season. They drew it out, and the guy you drew you were supposed to get, and he tried Namath. Namath said he wanted to play the bright lights of New York, Chicago, or L.A. They didn't have teams in Chicago or L.A. anymore, so he ended up trading the rights for the rights to Jerry Rome. And it turned out to be a great move. So all the things Bud did were in the 60s. And right when I had this ready to go, they played the Bills. Bud got drunk, shot the finger twice at the Bills, and Ralph Wilson uh, was not going to help me anymore. <laughs> you know, John, I always thought if, if you would help Bud twist that whole story around, and, and Bud just said, well, I, I thought I was aiming at the press box. You know, you'd have been fine. He did <laughs> Remember, it cost him 250000 for each finger, later reduced on appeal, I believe, to two fifty. But once Bud did that, uh, trying to get him in the Hall of Fame would have been, as Ira Miller always says, an outrage. You know, there were, as you know, John, because you're on the Hall of Fame uh, Board of Selectors, there were 49 players named to the NFL's 75th anniversary team. Uh, there's only one without a bust. That's a guy we've had on the show, Billy White Shoes Johnson, who is a great, great kick returner for the Oilers in the 1970s. How well, has he slipped through the cracks? And, and what does his candidacy – sorry, John, to cut you off, but, but how has he slipped through the cracks? And what does his candidacy need for a jump chart start? Well, Clark, we don't put kick returners in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. That's the bottom yeah. line. Billy also yeah. played receiver, and I covered Billy. My first training camp was 77, and he was going strong. You know, he's a 15th-round pick in 74 out of Widener College somewhere in Pennsylvania. And Billy, in truth, in his first five years with the Oilers, he had seven returns for touchdowns, and he was the very best. But then he had a knee injury, and he never was the same after that knee injury in 78. But he he had a comeback after a year in Canada and played a bunch of years with the Falcons, and he ended up not just on that all 75-year anniversary team, but also 70s and 80s uh, decade team as a returner. But I think if we put somebody in eventually like Devin Hester or somebody like that, then uh, you know Rick Upchurch is another great returner. Then I certainly would try to make a push for Billy White Shoes Johnson. And he may have had the all-time great, Touchdown dance, the funky chicken. <laughs> yeah. Got that right. That is true. Brian Mitchell, too. Brian Mitchell's another great one. That's right. There's a lot of them, Mel Gray. There's a lot of them. Hey, John, one of our favorites here at the Talk Fan Network is former Oilers wide receiver Charlie Hennigan, who was catching 100 passes in a season decades before it became fashionable in the NFL. Yet his name never comes up consideration as a finalist. First off, do you feel there's been a prejudice against AFL-era players? Secondly, was Hennigan a Hall of Fame receiver? Well, Charlie only played seven years, and then he went into business and made a lot of money. And um, and he had two, he had three 1,000-yard seasons playing with George Blanda, and 
And one of the reasons, when I was a kid in the AFL, Houston was, the Oilers were founded in 60 with the Cowboys. NFL was boring as heck, you know, three yards in a cloud of dust, and AFL threw it all over the place. And as a kid growing up at Waco between Houston and Dallas, I watched both. And that that season that Charlie Hennigan had in in, uh, 61, when he had, I've got it here, 1,746 yards, 82 catches. That's 124 yards of game, 21 a catch, 12 touchdowns. And then in 64, he had 101 catches for 1,546 yards and eight touchdowns and, and it was 110 a game. But I think the problem with Charlie is he just didn't play long enough but he was certainly one of the all-time great all-time AFL players but i think a lot of those AFL got AFL greats get overlooked. We're speaking with Hall of Fame voter John McClain of the Houston Chronicle on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com. And John, when I heard you mention Lamar Miller earlier, when you started to say Lamar Hump and mention Lamar Miller, it, it reminded me, I wanted to ask you about a player who's currently on the Texans roster, and he's a guy everyone knows, that's J.J. Watt. Let's just say, for argument's sake, that his career were to end now, that he doesn't play after you know, this season or a career ends today. Would he be Hall of Fame worthy? Is he a guy that belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, considering he's been hurt almost all of the last two years, it means he would have had five seasons, four great ones, three in which he tied Lawrence Taylor for NFL Defensive Player of the Year Award three times. It just depends. We've started putting in some players who had shorter careers, and you know he was the most, the most dominant the greatest defensive player during that time. So I, I, I'm prejudiced. I would be happy to promote him because there was a period there where it's, it's hard. Reggie, Reggie White in 87 to me was the single greatest year in history for a defensive player considering the strike and uh, how great he played uh, in those other games. And then, of course, LT almost all of his career. But what I, when I saw White during four of those five years, I thought he was right up there with White and Taylor as the greatest defensive players I've ever seen. So I would say there would be, there would be a very interesting conversation among the Hall of Fame voters if he was a candidate for after a seven-year career that was really a five-year career. John, let me ask you about another uh, fairly uh, recent uh, Texan, Andre Johnson. Well, he get caught up in the same trap as all these other receivers have been caught up in, where you, you sit there, you sit there, you sit there. I'm sure he will be, but here's here's, and I'll tell you guys because I've thought about this a lot. When uh, I making my presentation, assuming I'm still on this earth, I will end that presentation with. I'll find some other receivers. Jerry Rice played with Joe Montana and Steve Young. Marvin Harrison played with Peyton Manning. And I'll I'll mention them, and then I'll say, Andre Johnson did this and caught passes from, and I'll list this list of Hall of Shame quarterbacks he played for and say, gentlemen, thank you for your consideration. And when you consider how many bad quarterbacks he played with to be able to do what he did, I think he's definitely worthy. But I also think the way it takes receivers a long time, it'll be a long wait. Yeah, that was the Tim Brown argument. That was the Tim Brown argument, right. That's what I, was I remember say. that. It worked eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's because we can't get enough Raiders in, right, Ron? Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, there's always room for one more, if not three. Uh, <laughs> me, John, John, quickly, as I turn to my left of my office in my house and I look over my left shoulder, 
I see an autographed picture of my high school, uh, my boyhood idol, Billy Cannon. Yeah. Billy, if oh. Billy Cannon had stayed in Houston uh, and, and didn't end up being a tight end with the Raiders, uh, what do you think would have happened to him? That guy was really a great player for a little while. Well, I don't know if he's out of prison yet, but he yeah, was in he's prison a prison losing. dentist. He's a prison dentist now. He was so in Gora. I got to tell you, Billy, a, a story about Billy that Bud Adams told me and his wife confirmed. You know, they signed players back in the AFL illegally way before their careers was over, and before Billy's last year, he won the Heisman at LSU. A Bud had him over in Houston and wine him and dine him and his wife, and they were driving around in Nancy's white new white Cadillac convertible and then went back to bud's house in river oaks wealthiest section of houston and bud and uh billy were in the kitchen and bud said billy whatever that roselle's offering you with the rams i'll double it and billy cannon didn't say anything he said i'll quadruple it and cannon looked out in the driveway and he said mr adams my dad's never had a pot to pee in but he loves white cadillac convertibles if there's any way I could have that convertible, I'll sign with you. Bud went over, got the keys, gave it to him, signed, took off. Nancy comes in, says, Bud, Bud, where's my car? Did you put it in the garage? He said, not exactly, honey. That nice young man from Louisiana drove it back to Baton Rouge, and he's going to sign with us. She says, Bud, you go get me another one in the morning, and he did. And they went to a restaurant to celebrate, and halfway through the meal, the owner made an announcement. Anybody that has a white Cadillac convertible in the parking lot, it's on fire. Everybody runs out in the parking lot. One of them had flipped their cigarette, thought that they'd gotten it out. Instead, it was on fire. She looks at him and goes, Bud, Bud. He says, I know, honey. I'll get you another one in the morning. And he, she, had, she had in four days three white Cadillac convertibles. <laughs> and Billy Cannon, of course, that famous yes. picture signing under the goalpost. At uh, oh, yeah. Tulane Stadium, uh, uh, Billy ended up coming to Houston, playing really well till till he got. I can't remember to get crossways with Bud. Is that how he ended up with the Raiders? Yeah, that's right. He also got hurt. He hurt his, he hurt his leg. And that's, George Blanda that's told me one time, and we were at Hall of Fame uh, dinner, and he goes, "I said, George, I heard that when you left Houston, you said I'll never come back." as long as the fat Indian owns the team. And he said, that's not true. I never said that. I said, really? I've always heard that. He said, no. I said, the big fat Indian. And then he slapped his knee and laughed like crazy. And uh, that was my introduction to George Blander. John McLean, as always, thanks for the time and thanks for the education. That was fun. Hey, guys, thank you very much thanks, as always. John. Keep up the great work. Got it. That was Hall of Fame voter John McLean of the Houston Chronicle. Up next, Ron Borges of the Talk of Fame Network with the two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Ron, you did it before, so do it again. Blow the whistle on us, would you? That's the two-minute warning. Yes, sir, that means it's time for the two-minute drill. Ronnie, take us home. Malik Jefferson was Pizza Hut's first Pie Day winner for being taken as the 14th pick of the third round. Did he know what kind of pie they were talking about? Yes, he did. When he talks contracts, he said he's asking for pie in the sky. When he gets that gold card from Pizza Hut, he'll figure it out. Raiders are allegedly going to shake up their personnel department. Shouldn't they have done that before the draft? Not unless you want them sharing their material with Julian Assange. It's done when John Gruden says it's done. 
The Eagles, dra- the Eagles drafted a 6'8", 346-pound Australian rugby player who has never seen uh, or played football. Does that matter? No. Tell me how much football Antonio Gates played at Kent State. Not at that size, with that speed and athleticism. That's why they pay coaches. The Patriots already have USA rugby team member Nick Ebner on their roster. How soon before we see a run on rugby players in the draft? I think we just have. After the Eagles win another Super Bowl, being cute on draft night only plays well when you're wearing a ring. Vegas lost its first mock draft bet when Penn State running back Saquon Barkley was taken before Josh Rosen. If Vegas can't get the second pick right, who can? The Giants, G-Men. Only four of 98 mock drafters last week got the first pick right. (laughs) If draft day becomes our next national betting holiday, will Goose be banned for being the draft equivalent of a card counter? No. He'll be hired by Jerry Jones to advise him with DraftKings. Half the teams in the league have already banned me. The over-under on the Browns in Vegas is five and a half wins. They've won four games the last three years. You going over or under? Under. Only thing I trust in Cleveland is LeBron and the corned beef and pastrami at Slimans. Under. With all that youth, five is the number. The Cardinals are tied with Cleveland at five and a half wins. What's worse, being below six win projection or being tied with the Browns in anything? Tied with the Browns in anything. What's worse is even Las Vegas is telling the world Baker Mayfield is a better quarterback than Josh Rosen. (laughs) The Cardinals signed 24 undrafted rookie free agents last week. Is that a reaction, reaction to their roster or Vegas's prediction? Neither. They've been hired to coach Josh Rosen for his next interview. That was a reaction to the 8-8 eight eight season that cost Coach Bruce Arians his job. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Marty Herney, John McClain, John Turney, Ulysses Herodic. Gracias, Ulysses. For joining us, Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, www.talkofhamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.